Is it possible that African-American students are actually going to be better off without affirmative action? Is it possible that more opportunities will open up for students without these policies? Is it even possible? And how are Christians supposed to think about these issues anyway? Well, to discuss these issues and more, joining me on this episode of The Anthony Bradley Show is Dr. John Nunes, the former president of Concordia College, New York, currently serving as a senior fellow for the Center of Religion, Culture, and Democracy. Thank you for joining us for this important conversation. Welcome to The Anthony Bradley Show. I am excited today to talk to one of my dearest friends, uh, brother in the trenches, the Reverend Dr. John Arthur Nunez, who is currently the pastor of the Pilgrim Lutheran Church in Santa Monica, California. He is also the senior fellow at the think tank Center for Religion, Culture, and Democracy. Before this, he served previously as a president of Concordia College, New York, as president and CEO of Lutheran World Relief, and as a professor at Valparaiso University. He's also on the advisory board for the University of Austin. Born in Montego Bay, Jamaica, raised in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada, Dr. Nunez is a graduate of Concordia College, Concordia Seminary, and the Lutheran School of Theology as well. He's married to the absolutely magnificent Monique <laughs> Nunez. My dear sister herself has a long list of accolades. She is currently serving as the Director of Diversity and Student Success Coaching at Concordia University, Irvine. And they have a lot of kids and uh, a lot of grandkids. So definitely fill the quiver. So I'm, I'm excited brother, Dr. Reverend Nunez, to have you on the show to Sir. talk about affirmative action. Thank you for joining us today. Dr. Anthony Bradley, great to be with you, my brother. Thank you for the opportunity to engage in this conversation. So there's been a lot of talk, of course, about this affirmative action case. What I want to do here, here in the beginning is kind of lay out some history, because I think a lot of people may not understand the full context. I just want to lay out some of these things, and I want to get some of your thoughts. I think it's important for people to recognize that Jim Crow was a problem. It was real. And that yes. we've had discussions about reparations currently. And I think affirmative action was a legitimate attempt at redressing some of the things that happened during Jim Crow and particularly in education. In 1965, President Lyndon Johnson issued an executive order that called for workplaces with federal contracts of more than $50,000 or 50 or more employees to take, quote, affirmative action to remedy past and current racial inequities in the workplaces. And that was amended in an executive order 1967, by the way, to include women as a protected yeah. class. And as a footnote, that's when it derailed. I'll just say that for the record, because the primary beneficiaries of affirmative action after 1967, were not African-Americans. They were, in fact, white women. So when we talk about affirmative action, folks, we're actually talking about a program that primarily did not benefit black folks. It primarily benefited white women. In fact, just a little bit on this, and I'll get back to the history. In the legal profession, for example, in the late 1980s, 19% of attorneys were women 
by 2020, 37% of attorneys were women. According to the American Bar Association 2020 profile, 14.4% of the lawyers in this context were African-American, 14.4%. In 2010, it was 11.4%. So in a decade, (laughs) it went up 3%. Meanwhile, for white women, 37%. This is not our conversation today, but at some point, brother, I'd like to talk to you about the success of the civil rights movements, and there's more than one, have resulted, I think, in the counterproductive co-optation and appropriation of all kinds of categories that have extended benefits to communities beyond those for which they were originally intended. That's another conversation. But even, you know, right up to the religion of wokeism, which has a immensely storied history among people of African descent, including some Jamaican folk like Marcus Garvey. But that's another conversation. We will put a pin in that conversation for our next yeah. discourse because we do need to absolutely talk about that. So that's some of the history. Beginning in the late 1960s, affirmative action was reached for Black folk. There is a conversation, I've seen this in, in some literature, that it should have been limited just to us and no one else. But they extended it to white women, and then they extended it to the disabled. They keep adding classes to the statute. Now, fast forward to 2021, 22, 23, and as universities were pressing in hard on affirmative action, lowering standards, particularly for African-American and some Hispanic students, the negative externality that began to irritate some folk were the fact that Asian-Americans were being denied admittance to some of the top schools. And that began to stir up a lot of concerns and questions about this particular cultural moment. So there was a 6-3 decision that struck down the affirmative action programs at Harvard University and the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Primarily, these cases were raised by Asian Americans, right? This is a context where, like, Whitey is not the enemy. Now, I've seen some extremely ridiculous comments that white folks use Asians as a proxy to destroy this program, which to me is so unbelievably stupid. Because what what that says is that Asian Americans don't have any agency, right? And they can't even pursue their own issues. Which is at the heart of everything that's wrong with affirmative action, in my estimation, in the long run, is it's utterly condescending and derogatory presuppositions. But we're going to get to that as well. But agreed that somehow Asians don't have the capacity to arrive at the conclusion that they're being denied admission. <laughs> like they're not experiencing that and they can't figure out what to do about it. <laughs> and they need some kind of great hope to help them navigate that. Yeah, exactly. Which It was just clear. Someone, an Asian American student, had extremely high SAT, ACT scores, incredible GPA, denied admission. Meanwhile, for the sake of affirmative action, a student with lower academic performance was given at minutes. To me, it's pretty clear night and day. So these cases were brought up to several levels of our judicial system, state Supreme Courts, et cetera, ended up on the federal level at the Supreme Court. 
And the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the plaintiffs that, in fact, that Asian Americans were being discriminated against and that it's illegal for Harvard University and the University of North Carolina to use race to discriminate against students on the basis of their class association with a group of people. Now, this ruling really has struck a lot of, I think, fear in the minds of, of some people, which I think is a bit a bit irrational, but we'll, we'll get to that in just a moment. I'm wondering for you, because wow. you've served as a college president, you're currently on the advisory board at the University of Austin. What do you think some of the implications are going to be of this Supreme Court ruling? Thank you for that. That's a great framing and a fair framing. But let it just be said, I don't know anyone in higher education that I know who thinks that diversity of perspective is not additive to the culture and the campus experience of students. Everyone agrees to that. So that's point one. There's no one who says that we want monolithic campuses. So when you address the fear, that's point one. Point two, the vast majority of Americans, and not just Republicans, and not just independents, but Democrats, the majority of Democrats, who are not in the higher education space, because as you know, higher education space is its unique subculture of American culture. But the vast majority of Americans are not in favor of affirmative action. So that's just an established statistic, of course, just because the vast majority are supportive of something does not make that thing right. But it strikes me that present or future discrimination is never a solution for current or past discriminatory practices. Now, you're exactly right. The playing field is not and has not ever been level. And for people of color, it's been even more uneven. So what is the solution? So I'm struck that checking boxes <laughs> is not the solution. And there's lots of reasons for that. It cannot take into consideration enough of the categories around the axes of diversity that describe people. So you look at the beneficiaries of affirmative action, and they have disproportionately been, and you know this, my brother, people of color who are in the upper echelon or the elite anyhow. Okay. So yeah, there's, yeah. there's a socioeconomic impact that is not even addressed in terms of any of these affirmative action. And the, the statistics bear it out. So there's a stat that was in the New York Times. So you know it's not right-wing bias, okay? In the New York Times, a stat from this past Sunday, July 9th, and it has the quintiles of admission at the University of North Carolina, and 40% of 17-year-olds are in the upper income quintile, $93,000 or more, which is vastly, in terms of as you sort these things out, vastly different than the rate uh, quintile as a whole. So the stats bear it out. Yeah, it's, it's really fascinating to me that people for some reason, maybe because they think all black people are poor. <laughs> but this this idea that that affirmative action has been helping black students get into UVA and Yale and Princeton is crazy. What it has right. done is help 
the children of the black middle and upper classes. Oh, yeah. And Caribbean, Canada, I'm a Caribbean. I'm, you know, I'm African descended, but I'm Caribbean. And I mean, my folk love it. <laughs> you know, those now, who, it's, you and I've had this discussion about the legacy of slavery. And, you know, so those who did not suffer the same kind of consequence from the legacy of Southern forms, Southern U.S. forms of slavery but who benefited from kind of a colonial experience, benefited disproportionately, and were immigrants in the United States of America, benefited disproportionately by affirmative action as well. Absolutely. I think it's one of the reasons why, I think at Harvard, nearly half of the quote-unquote black students are actually not descendants of American slavery and Jim Crow. They are Nigerians, West Indians, West Africans, et cetera, right? What Harvard's done, which is really brilliant on their part, they just expanded the definition of black to check the box. Well, that's it. We assume there's this progress helping out the people that the policy was intended to help. And that needle hasn't moved. No. Because if it was intended to help low-income, disadvantaged blacks get admitted into college, Blacks, whites, Latinos, blacks, whites, and Latinos, it didn't work. It did not address it. So in other words, you're not really addressing the goal, the intended goal of a diverse higher educational experience for students. Yeah. And we're only talking about the top schools. Let me tell you something. Waka Waka State University does not need affirmative action. Maybe the top 20%. Because at the state school level, and you know this, someone who's career in higher ed, your average state school accepts everybody, (laughs) right? (laughs) If you can read, you can get into the lowest tier state college in your state. So it's really interesting in terms of the post-Harvard decision, the sort of arguments that are being made in the public square around this are really interesting because, again, they are not arguments in favor of helping to remedy disproportionate admissions at all. They're another kind of argument. So I'm I'm curious to know from your perspective, why do you think, because I, I found this to be really curious, why do you think people are so alarmed or so anxious about the impossibility that if we don't have, we don't have affirmative action, Black students will not be able to go to college. I mean, I've sort of heard variations on this theme is like, oh, no, without affirmative action, X and Y and Z school won't have any black students. Why do you think people are so concerned about about that? Anthony, you and I have had some amazing conversations over the years, and we go back decades around sort of a taxonomy of racism, how racism is not just white supremacy. It is the most blatant kind of form of racism. You can use all of the symbols of, you know, Confederate flag, you know, red meated white supremacists. But there's another kind of racism. And and Michael Gerson actually coined this term. It's the soft bigotry of low expectations. It's the kind of progressive orthodoxy that presumes that without these sort of measures, that there are human persons who are 
beneath them somehow. So it's condescending, it's derogatory, it acknowledges the lack of equity, which is a good starting point, because we don't all come from the same background, and we don't have the same access. But what it denies, and to an earlier word that you used, it denies agency and the possibility of empowerment is what it essentially denies. And in my mind, so people get all bent out of shape because of the word equity. I think it's a good word. It just it recognizes that life is unfair and uneven. The question is, what do you do about that? In other words, what's your next step? What is the bizarre overreaction? I think the decision of the court is unsettling to the kind of, and I'll use this term again, the kind of new orthodoxy or neo-orthodoxy that is its own almost religion in the United States of America that presumes a whole set of categories. So that's just a a little teaser of a response. If you want to go deeper, we can. It's just really sad to me that there is this assumption that Black students can't achieve, that Black students on their own merit and their own work and their own performance. And if the playing field was level, they would fail. Yeah, if we level the playing field, they won't go to college. That, to me, is absolute insanity because the data doesn't bear that out at all. That's correct. And the performance prior to affirmative action doesn't bear that out either. Those who succeeded when the system was definitely steeped against them. Exactly. Interesting. And I mean, they had, they, they had a lot more resilience. They were a bit less fragile, had a bit more self-confidence as well, and were willing to just push through some challenge yeah. and and some adversity. And I think it's also and to me and HBCUs. HBCUs were places that taught resilience. Absolutely. And I think it should be disconcerting to everyone if we are teaching black kids that they will not have access to opportunity unless the government has some sort of program like affirmative action that they can't achieve without Uncle Sam doing something. Right. It's interesting because during Jim Crow, those years, that wasn't the message to black folk. Black folks said, listen, get government out of our ways so we can compete because we believe that we are just as good. And sometimes we're telling some black kids, you you, no, 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 you're not just as good. You're a bit deficient. And so you need lower standards to get admittance in order for to have an opportunity to succeed. Now, there's some history here I, I looked up because. All the alarmists are saying, oh, my gosh, without affirmative action, black students, we're going to go back to Jim Crow, which, well, I think, well, actually, if we went back to Jim Crow, we might have higher graduation rates, but that's a whole other podcast. In 1996, California, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. California became the first state to explicitly prohibit the use of racial preferences in government programs. And it was sort of Proposition 209. You may remember Ward Connolly came out and everybody really lacerated him. And they they piled on that brother and said he was a sellout of Uncle Tom, et cetera. And it's interesting that in the state of California, as liberal as it is, this goes to your earlier point, they didn't want it. In right. California, they didn't want affirmative action. So here's some data from the consequences of that. So if you compare 1995 to 1997, Versus 1998 to 2000. So after affirmative action was prohibited, if you looked at black enrollment at Berkeley and UCLA, it fell by 40%. And Hispanic enrollment fell by 34%. 
Now, a lot of people say, oh, see, we told you, we told you, if you don't have affirmative action, it's going to hurt Black and Hispanic students. But the one variable that people don't understand is that Black and Hispanic undergraduate enrollment rose at all the other campuses in the University of California system. Between 1997 and 2000, applications from Black California residents to UC schools rose by 10%. Higher applications translated into higher enrollments in the UC system. It went up 5% from 1997 to 2000. And from 1997 to 2006, it went up 15% for Blacks and 74% for Hispanics. So one of the consequences of making affirmative action in higher education illegal in California is that the enrollment dropped at the top schools, but it rose everywhere else. And graduation rates rose. That's it. You see, which meant more Blacks and Latinos in California were now getting an education. So I dug into that after looking at your statistics here. And I found an article which did an analysis that when Prop 209 was introduced, Anthony, in 1997, 20% was the aggregated Black and Latino enrollment in California schools. This past year, record high Black and Latino enrollment, 43%. See, at the end of the day, back to your earlier question, what is it about governments that they believe that they can be better surrogates or substitutes for human initiative and for aspiration and for families. I'm not sure what the answer to that question is, but families will find a way to figure it out. They know their children need education. Schools will figure it out because they know they need diverse campuses. And so one of the reasons given in the piece I found, which, by the way, again, not from a conservative source, the L.A. Times, was that campuses and enrollment offices figured out a way to reverse the initial collapse of enrollment numbers after Prop 209 by experimentation in recruitment. In other words, humans have this kind of capacity to figure stuff out. And at the end of the day, the result is even better than it is when the government attempts to manipulate the outcome. Sadly, this well-intended program, I don't think it made the student experience any better off. I'll just ask you, as a college administrator yourself, what do you think some of the negative consequences of Oh, man. Of, of, oh, of man. This just goes on and on. Yeah, this just goes on and on. The negative implications. I don't know how many times I've been told, for example, well, you know, one of the only reasons you got this job was because of your race or ethnicity. So there's this constant kind of uh, self-suspicion or imposter syndrome that you carry when you've got these kinds of programs. Of course, I never benefited from any of those programs because I went to <laughs> schools that were outside of those kinds of programs. They failed to see that. Not only that, I didn't benefit from any aid going to school because I was an immigrant to the United States of America and wasn't eligible for any of the government programs to pay for all of those sorts of things. But there is this kind of stigma of self-suspicion, right? This kind of sense of, I'm not really sure why I'm really there. And not only that, but I mean, it, it creates an anxiety, I think, even in classrooms where students are suspicious 
of each other. So, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, you could say that a meritocracy is unfair and you can point out all the problems in kind of a meritocratic system. But at the end of the day, I think it it beats the alternatives. And so when you look at the data you just quoted in California, the student experience is now better off because that suspicion has been eliminated. Of course it is. Of course it is. And they've shown that numbers of minority students is at a record high. Right. And one one of the things that affirmative action really failed to capture, which I think is more important, is not enrollment rates, but graduation rates. Well, that's right. Right. And so when you bring students into an environment where you lower the standards for them to get in, the likelihood of them graduating diminishes. You're not doing them any sort of service. Any favors. Any at all, at all. And so what happened in California, which is probably going to happen nationwide, which I think is going to be a great thing, you're going to have more students being properly matched with the sorts of programs and experiences that are going to put them in a position to succeed. It is much better to graduate with a 3.9 at Waka Waka State University than have low self-esteem and graduate from a tier two school. So you mentioned your great affection for Monique Nunes, which is exceeded, of course, by me by far, but your soror. And so she is the director of diversity at Concordia University in Irvine. But what they've done, because schools know that they have to pay attention, especially to first generation students, is they've attached something called student success coaching. The expectation remains the same. The standard remains the same. The threshold of success remains the same. But the measures that we use to fill in the gap are we expect students now to remediate themselves or to gain or compensate for whatever gap they have because of their poor public education in whatever environment they find themselves. By the way, which is, these are government-run schools, by the way. So the expectation has not changed in terms of the success, but the school has figured out a way to help students to achieve. I think there is an onus on institutions to figure out a way to close the gap. Because humans have the capacity, if given the opportunity and the support. You're right. And some students have just come from absolutely horrible. I mean, K-12 experiences where they're reading three, four grades below grade level. Dude, I've got a friend who who teaches high school, public high school in the city of Chicago, south side of Chicago. And she says, I don't teach anything. All I do is counsel students on their life problems and hope that no fight breaks out. And if it does, I referee and I call security. That's what I do in my classroom all day long. Right. So as a a college president, if you were going to give your admissions team a vision for diversifying a student body on enrollment, what what sorts of things would you have them look for other than the sort of racialization of, of human persons? Yeah, the reduction to the human person to a single category is maybe the one of the worst kinds of racism. So here's where I actually agree with some of our progressive friends when they talk about intersectionality, that people are more than one thing. I mean, I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I think diversity programs from school to school should be aligned with the strategic vision that the institution has, 
should be aligned with whatever kind of creedal or faith commitment. So I've worked in Lutheran higher education, should be aligned and pay attention to the creedal commitments and should be contextualized from place to place. That's the other thing about these standards that are superimposed on schools that pay no attention to the kind of region in which one finds itself. So it's about recruitment officers and enrollment officers knowing who are the potential students that are in the pipeline, and then trying to figure out ways, working with faculty, to talk about what is the student experience that we have as a goal for our institution. And so I think it's about turning, again, those axes of diversity. So socioeconomics is one, um, all sorts of experiences that students have in terms of their backgrounds are really, really important. I think it's important to pay attention to international students, because if part of the goal of higher education is to prepare students for a global economy, students have to learn how to interact with people from all over the world. So, you know, I mean, there's I think there's lots of creative solutions that you can develop in an institution that is unique to the institution and pays attention also to a strategic advantage that you might want to have in your particular market. Because, I mean, it's a dog-eat-dog. There are 1.5 fewer students now than there were prior to COVID. So schools are closing everywhere. You may not know this, Dr. Bradley, but schools are closing everywhere. So you can see it as a crisis or you can see it as an opportunity. So I'm glad that this is, you know, a higher ed. To introduce kind of disruption into the market, I think, is exactly what we need to do in higher ed. Yeah, and it's going to make everyone have to get more creative. And I use the word multivariate. People have sort of multivariate histories about them. Like it's a safer part. word than intersectionality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, well, I'm uh, writing that down. Multivariance? Yeah, multivariate. So That's a, the same thing as what, what I was describing, right? Absolutely. It's just research methods from social sciences, right? When you okay. look at variables to do social science work, you look at there's a univariate approach and there's a multivariate approach. And the multivariate approach encompasses the multiple variables that constitute someone's life. And here's the thing. This is so fascinating that you can have a campus full of white people and it's yeah. still diverse. Well, of course. Of course. Right. You can also have an HBCU that's all quote unquote black and it's incredibly diverse. Incredibly diverse. Exactly. Right? So the, the fact that we've reduced diversity, we've sort of racialized yeah. the reduction of, of diversity has actually, I think, undermined the possibilities of how education can open up a student's mind to the world, as you so eloquently said. So this is good. I mean, I think it's it's going to force yeah. people to be as internationally orientated as we say that we want to be. You know, we are the world from back in the, in the 1980s. We're going to have to put some money to that right now. What I like about your multivariant strategy is that it refuses to permit any sorts of essentialism, racial essentialism, gender essential. In other words, that I am reducible to, it's like mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the blackest one of all, or it's a Latino thing you wouldn't understand, as if that is kind of the essence, I'm using Aristotelian language, the essence of what comprises my being. And, you know, and that's an affront to what Christians and 
observant Jews and observant Muslims ought to know about the human person. Right. I'm wondering, now that you raised the issue of the sort of Christian formation component, I'm wondering for Christians in particular, how should Christians think about issues like affirmative action? Because what my experience is that Christians stop thinking like Christians when it comes to issues like this, and they simply rely on political ideology to make them make sense, to have them make sense of some of these issues. I'm wondering, as yourself a theologian, as a pastor, as a president of a Christian university, you've been in Christian higher education for decades. How would you encourage Christians, parents, pastors to think about an issue like like affirmative action? So, you know, we have bookmarked this co-optation conversation for later of things like the civil rights movement. I'd like to bookmark a conversation at some point because I'd love to hear your perspective on this too. The extent to which Christians have succumbed on both the right and the left to a kind of neo-Gnosticism where their entire Christian worldview is totally identifiable and succumbed to and sold out to either the right wing of the Republican Party or the progressive wing of the Democratic Party, and they've kind of sold their soul, I'm really concerned about the extent to which Christian faith is indistinguishable now from the kind of political spaces that we find ourselves in as a nation. But since you insinuated that, I I just wanted to bookmark that. I don't think it's complicated, and maybe I'm oversimplifying. It's all the things that we've said before. If we believe that humans are created in the image and likeness of God, that must apply either to every single human person, I'm sorry, from the womb to the tomb, or it doesn't apply to any. And if it applies to all, it means that all human persons have inherent dignity, value, worth, meaning, and capacity, which means that all persons have the ability and the agency to do something about their destiny in the world. And actually, I believe that humans have imprinted onto their very spirits, onto their very beings, that kind of aspiration to freedom and to achievement. And that work ennobles people because that's the way God designed us. Work is before the fall, right? Work, you tend this. And actually to deprive people of the opportunity to work is to deny their God-given dignity. It might be the worst crime you can commit against a human person is to deny that. So I think it's pretty simple, candidly. I think that learning and the kind of pursuit of transcendent truth is another thing that God has imprinted on us and on our very spirits. So yeah, I don't think there are any tricks or secrets to any of this if we see the human person as image bearers, divine image bearers of God. Absolutely. I think I would just add to my progressive friends, if you believe that lowering standards is a way to advance the education opportunities for people of color, you've actually dehumanized them. That's it. You sabotage their dignity. If you believe the only way that you can do that is by lowering standards. And so I think there's an opportunity to work with conservatives on this because I think conservatives really struggle with, well, it's wrong. Okay, great. But you have to work toward the solution because the problem is 
college readiness. So if you're against affirmative action, which is perfectly okay to be against that, you need to be that much more vigilant about working really hard to make sure that students are prepared K to 12. That ought to be, if you're against affirmative action, higher education, then you, you ought to be incredibly overly committed to making sure that kids are college ready. So you can't just be against it. You now have to be an advocate for making sure that students are at grade level when they graduate high school. And I think that's where the progressives and the conservatives can be working together because the K to 12 space is the problem. And what happens is that often with the student success programs, they're in this place of having to bridge the gap, right? You can't just be against it and pretend again that we live in a meritocratic society. If I could quote George W. Bush speaking at a commencement in 2004, America rejects the ethic of sink or swim. America rejects social Darwinism because strength is not the same as worth. Christians believe that every human person has worth. And just because you're strong or strongly situated in your life does not mean that you're the only one that gets to swim and everybody else gets to sink. And so there's something around that, to your point, around what is the kind of Christian response. I could not agree with you more, man. So this is an opportunity for people of goodwill who are on the right or who are so-called progressives to work together. This is a bipartisan moment. Yeah, if, if you're loving your neighbor properly, you have to care about K-12 education. If you're against affirmative action, you have to do that. That's right. if, if you're a progressive, if you love your neighbor properly, then you will want them to aspire to the things that challenge people and grow them because that's how we grow. We grow from challenge, right? And by lowering standards, that's also that's also not love. My simple test is this. Would you lower standards for your own children? And so if you wouldn't lower the standard of expectation for your own child, why, why are you lowering it for my children? What is it about my children or your enlightenment that gives you the... the <laughs> <laughs> the impression that you got to lower the standard for my child. I'm saying, <laughs> man, it is Absolutely. such a delight always to connect with you on these questions. And I want to commend you to Anthony for daring to tackle tough topics. You've never been afraid <laughs> of marching right into the midst of these topics. And I, and I commend you for that, man. Well, thank you. It's, it was great having you on the, on the show today. I will be back on this topic. We have got to have a regular podcast conversation. We have a lot to talk about. We have been around a few years. We've seen a lot. We've got a lot to and talk so, about on the air and off the air. Absolutely. So hopefully we'll have some opportunity to do that. The Reverend Dr. John Nunes, thank you so much for joining us today on the Anthony Bradley Show. I would also like to thank my Patreon supporters for your very generous support of this project. If it were not for your generosity and support, this project would not be possible. You are the most important part of this experience. So if you liked this episode and enjoyed it, please like, subscribe, and leave a comment on the various platforms where the podcast is heard. And I look forward to exploring more issues with you. Again, from my vantage point here, 
at the Atkin Institute and Hyper College in Grand Rapids, Michigan on the Anthony Bradley Show. Thank you.